And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Ryan Oliver. And I'm Chris Thomas. And this week we have a very special guest with us, our first guest on the show. She is a writer at the Austin Chronicle, Jenny Nolf. Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What. Thank you for having me. So excited to be the first. Yes, well, I mean, if people have been listening to any podcast I've done over the years, Jenny and I have collaborated on just about every single one, so it just, it would, it would feel wrong, honestly, if you weren't the first guest, but also... It would feel wrong given the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today, specifically the good. Um, but we'll just get right into it. Uh, this week, we're going to be diving into the filmography of M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, he has a new movie out currently called Old. Um, yes, we realize we are a week late to the party, but it is the number one movie at the box office, and people are still talking about it, and people are still memeing about it, which we might get into a little bit at the end of this episode. So, um, we feel it's still in the conversation, so we feel it's the best time to dive into the films of M. Night Shyamalan. Um, so I'm just going to introduce the picks, and we'll dive into it immediately. We'll just get into it, because there's three of us, there's a lot to dive into, so let's just get right to it. So for the good, and I should also preface, too, um, I, I think this is technically like my pick round, it doesn't matter, but I, we all kind of like put our heads together on these picks, so... Um, so it's it, this one is more of a group effort as opposed to an individual set of picks. So, But for the good, we've chosen Signs from 2002. For the bad, we've chosen Lady in the Water from 2006. And for the what, maybe a movie that the what category is perfectly right for is The Happening from 2008. Um, but as usual, we're going to start with the good. And we're going to kick into Signs. And I want to swing it over to Jenny because... Um, this is one of your favorite movies of all time. Uh, we've talked about it ad nauseum, not in a podcast format. Um, so it just, it felt wrong to not have you on when we decided that science was going to be the good to discuss this movie. So I want to kick it to you. What's your history with this movie? And um, just a little bit of like why you love it so much. Okay. So the first time I watched signs, my parents forced me to go to a baby shower and I got bored and halfway through it I was like I'm going home and I walked down the street and I plopped in signs uh, as my parents got drunk at a baby shower and I my my mind was blown I was scared like shitless (laughs) I was like what the fuck I was I was maybe let's see it came out in 2002 so I must have been like 13 because it was on dvd I, I lived near a giant body of water, so every night going to bed, I would tell myself the aliens wouldn't come and get me because <laughs> yes. I live right by a lake. <laughs> like I had to like literally tell myself to calm down at the end of the night uh, after I watched Signs. And then I refused to watch it for quite some time because it was too scary. Uh, 
probably until Scary Movie 3 came out. I guess that was only a couple years later. But uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, Scary Movie 3 made it approachable enough for me to watch it again. <laughs> Leave it to Leslie Nielsen to, to bring you back down yeah. to Earth. Um, and then after that, I, I literally watch Signs every year. I, I'm pretty sure Letterboxd, I haven't logged it as often as I have put it on. I have definitely put it on to fall asleep to. It is my biggest comfort movie. I think it's amazing. And I will literally text anybody who wants to listen to me talk about it like every two months. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, so let's talk about signs. Like, I'm pretty sure if I got drunk at a bachelorette party, I don't know if you saw that, like, video going around of the girl talking about Pirates of the Caribbean 2. I would be that girl, but talking about signs. <laughs> so. I can vouch for that. That's, that's, that's happened. I'm, like, drunk, and I'm just like, do you guys want to hear about the greatest movie ever? It's called Signs. <laughs> we know, So Jenny. here we are. Yeah. <laughs> here I am, sober, talking about the greatest movie ever. Wow. It's called Signs. <laughs> have you heard about it? <laughs> We're about to. I have a feeling. We are about to. Uh, before we dive into it, uh, like, completely, um, let I, I'll swing it over to you, Chris. Um, like, uh, similarly, what is your relationship with this movie? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, Signs was uh, definitely... I, I went and saw it in the theater with my mom. And that was after nice. I was a big fan of, I'm sure, as most people were, of uh, The Sixth Sense. Uh, and then the follow-up of Unbreakable. Um, Buck yeah, and love Unbreakable. I love both those movies. I think Unbreakable is probably my favorite of Shyamalan's entire career. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty decent through line for for a lot of people, or a lot of people that I've spoken to, if not Sixth Sense. Um, but that being said, I think Signs is really his most accessible movie. Uh, it's more Spielbergian uh, than his his earlier outings. Uh, the, the the Sixth Sense. There's a lot of gore. Uh, it's a real straight across like true horror. There's some like real frightening imagery in there with uh, the ghosts and the dead people and like the hanging people and the scene and the the kid throwing up in the, the tent. Throwing up that in the one tent. always stuck with me as a kid. Yeah, oh, yeah. There, there's some real horrifying <laughs> stuff in there. And not to say that there isn't about signs, but I think the the horror that's in signs is different it has a different feel and it's more playful and it's more fun um i think there's a lot of elements to signs that um really sort of capture uh, more of a whimsy uh which makes sense seeing uh, Shyamalan is like he loves steven spielberg he's very upfront about that um so i think it really kind of comes across this one and it's something that i think a wider audience can enjoy and that's what i really remember about the the movie when seeing it for the first time again in 2002 i would have also been about you know 13 14 um it's so much fun and again on the recent rewatches like this movie is like you just have a blast the entire way through it's really freaking good like i i gotta say upon rewatch not to put the cart before the horse but upon rewatch i think it might be my favorite of his because i've always said unbreakable is my favorite of his but upon rewatch i'm glad you said playful because i think this is his most playful movie this is the first of his movies because i think a lot of movies whether they've worked or not after this one uh, of his have a sense of humor to them which i think we're going to explore especially when we get to our what i think um but i think his movies do usually have a sense of humor and i think it started here because i love six Sense and i loved unbreakable but they are very dour movies mm. they are very like very humorless films and signs has many like moments like you said it's the most overtly spielbergian um H.G. Wells, of course, they name-check War of the Worlds in the movie when Meryl says, oh, it's just like War of the Worlds, which, like, I've warmed up to Spielberg's remake of War of the Worlds because we have a one-to-one connection there in the years since. 
But as far as sort of like post 9-11 melancholy and like fearing what you don't understand and fearing this event that has happened, I think I actually prefer signs to something like Spielberg's War of the Worlds. And I think that it is... Um, but I think, yes, I think it, the movie, too, is his most overtly Spielbergian. I think a lot of, like, the filmmaking techniques are there um, that to, to sort of, like, mimic that. But I think, like, what he does, I, I really do think that he makes this kind of material his own. Um, he's just very, like, you know, name-checking the things that he likes and very upfront about the things that he likes. But I think he, like, really, truly makes it its own. I think the performances in this movie are like strong across the board. I think it's his most balanced of tone films, I, I would say. Um, because even though like later Shyamalan, which we'll kind of probably touch on at the end of the episode, I appreciate the big swing. I always do. And he does swing big, uh, but he does tend to occasionally shoot himself in the foot. Whereas like science, he doesn't do that. Um, and I think it's also his most purely emotional movie, like to, you know, to kind of go back to Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, like they have their, that too. But again, I think that sort of like moroseness puts a little bit of barrier, whereas like this, like, especially upon rewatching, like, you know, not to get sentimental, but it's like, there's multiple scenes where it's like, I'm just like crying watching this movie. Like there are like two or three scenes where I'm just like, oh my God, this is actually like heartbreaking. Um, long-winded way of saying i think upon rewatch i think this is my favorite Shyamalan movie wow um I, I i have to say like unbreakable might be might be like technically a better movie i love unbreakable um but uh but then again i mean we'll touch on it on the end something like glass big swing doesn't work maybe sours it a little bit for me versus like signs i'm just like i think this is really unfiltered his best and i guess I didn't even talk about my relationship with this movie. I saw it on DVD. I did not see it in the theater. I wish I did. Um, my best friend at the time uh, was staying over at my house, and he brought it over. Um, and he had already seen it, obviously, because he, he owned it. And uh, I want to say, I think it's during still one of the most terrifying, and I know Jenny touched about it on this, about like the movie being terrifying. One of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in the movie and especially as a, a 12, 13 year old, depending on, you know, when I saw this, um, is the, the scene where they show the, the unfiltered footage at a birthday party in Brazil <laughs> when the alien walks out of the bushes. And I, I remember I was laying on the floor on my stomach and we were watching it in the living room. And my friend at the time grabbed my ankle the second that the alien popped out, <laughs> scarred me for life. What a like, dick. So <laughs> terrifying. Oh my god, I would have died. What am I know? And, and the crazy thing is, like, that's like the third time we see an alien. Like, we, we see it on the roof, mm -hmm. and then there's another moment, and forgive me, I'm forgetting it, but, uh, but like, that moment specifically scared the living shit out of me. Like, scarred for life. Though, of course, my dad, because he's funny... Uh, or thinks he's funny. He's kind of fu actually funny. Um, later on, when uh, Meryl and the kids are watching TV and they have the tinfoil hat on, he goes, he's like, why are they wearing Hershey's Kisses on their head? And then a year later, Jenny already touched on this, Scary Movie 3 comes out. Yeah. And Charlie Sheen unwraps the tinfoil and starts eating a Hershey's Kiss on it. So I was like, okay, so someone else made that joke. Your dad needs to get story credit. This is all I'm saying. He should get story Your credit. dad needs to write for the scary movies. <laughs> he should. He should. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into Scary Movie 3 a little bit more periodically through this. Sure. But 
Yeah, but I, I was just really impressed uh, by this movie. Like, how well he handles the tone of it, how well the movie goes from being, like, actually, like, how it goes from being whimsy, as you said, Chris, how it goes from being comedic, how it goes to being tragic, how it goes to being, like, scary. And, and the fact, too, where, like, Unbreakable and The Sixth Sense are, like, you know, they have such a... You know, Shyamalan's known for the twist endings. Yeah. Um, which is funny. Like, his movies... More of his movies don't have a twist than do. Right. But, like, he got famous for those, too. And this movie, like... Is, like, just, like, a beautiful magic trick. Um, I'm sure we'll get to the ending more. But it's, like, he gives you everything you need to know... Up front throughout the movie... Without telling you that he's giving you that information. Right. And it just accumulates so beautifully. Um, but I'll leave the... I'll open it up to you guys. I feel like I've talked too long, hmm. but um, yeah, I, I I loved this movie upon rewatch. I was actually like blown away. I feel like I, I have vastly underrated it, even though I really liked the movie when I saw it initially. I think it's definitely a movie that ages well, because I feel like around the time it came out, people accused the ending of being a quote unquote twist and it being quote unquote dumb. But I feel like the ending has so much to read from it. And despite if M. Night Shyamalan meant it or not, it's really fascinating, the trajectory of like all the elements. And I think one of my favorite things that made me like really start warming up to the movie in my adulthood and like really love discussing it is I read this like critique of it or kind of like, I guess, essay on it where someone was talking about how the aliens are actually like fallen angels. And if you kind of treat them as like a religious metaphor, the film, like, it's amazing how well it works with the water part. And like, if you see the water as holy water and kind of right. el those kinds of elements and stuff like that, because given um, uh, Mel Gibson's character, uh, Graham's uh, connection with God and his, uh, his you know, dispute of faith. Of faith. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think that the movie is like, even if that's not intentional, it's still so... It's all there and so such an interesting way to read the movie that is already a very well put together film. So I like movies that you can like read like more beyond the text of and I feel like this one has just a lot to read beyond its text. Yeah, and, and like you said, whether it's intentional or not, I, I think I mean I think definitely there's a reason that he's introduced as a priest who is having this crisis of faith. There's a lot of religious symbolism throughout the house. Um, like, uh, he's, uh, there, there's a shot where, um, Graham is, I think he's exiting the shower and he walks into his bedroom and there's the outline of a crucifix that's on the wall. That's obviously yeah. dust that's gathered there, but he took the crucifix down some time ago. So it was like the shadow of, of God and, and his religious past is still there with him, even though he's not acknowledging it. So there's definitely that subtext throughout. I do personally love the sort of, um, the aliens are actually demons, uh, sort of theory that goes around. Um, but I do want to back up just real quick and, and touch on what you said about how this movie, people kind of poo-pooed it for having a, a bad twist ending. But in order for a movie to have a twist, that there has to be misdirection. Like, that's the definition mm -hmm. of a twist, is we're going this way and whoop, guess what, we pulled a fast one. And this movie never tries to introduce anything like that. It, it's... Um, I like the War of the Worlds comparison, but then also the comparison to, I'd say something like Alfred Hitchcock's Birds, of strangers not understanding what is going on around them and, and, and sort of having to deal with 
bits and pieces of information that they're able to gather from TV or people that they meet in the town and and sort of misinformation going around between them. There's never at any point where it tries to lead you in one direction and then introduces a new element. It's very much a disaster and invasion movie the entire time. So I, I don't get that criticism. I think it's in its Hitchcock elements and its Spielberg elements and then in the elements that are wholly Shyamalan's style and his stamp. It's pretty great throughout. Yeah, I, I, it, like it's really a symphony that he pulls off. I, I, I think maybe even, like you said, the fact that he's was sort of pigeonholed into being like, oh, you're the twist guy. Yep. So they're like, oh, well, this twist is lame, and it's like, no, it's it's not a twist. Mm-hmm. All of that was presented like it's. You've listened to the whole monologue that Graham and Merrill have of like, okay, there are two types of people in this world: who people who believe in like in in fate and believe in this sort of like oh i i'm lucky in a way that that another hand has been guiding that or it's like oh it's just blind luck like like all that stuff and and like everything has such a beautiful purpose like coming to that ending and in a way that i think is like again handled super well i mean everything from like the half drank cups of water (laughs) all the way to that monologue i think is just like yeah, I, I think it's handled incredibly well. Um, should we rip the Band-Aid off a little bit and, and talk about the elephant or the asshole in the room? Uh, about <laughs> Mel Gibson? I we mean, it's inevitable it that point, we get right? there. We have to get to it at some point. I mean, like, it's just like, uh, it's 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 weird because it's like, especially in this day and age where it's like, it's harder for me to go and rewatch certain things starring certain people mm-hmm. who have like a checkered history or like, they just like uh, what they've done makes me like sick. And like Mel Gibson is not a, a role model by any stretch of the word, but there's something about this movie for one. I think this is a career best performance in, in a career that has like many great performances. Um, and movies I, you know, grew up with loving, like Lethal Weapon and, and The Road Warrior. Right. I, I think this this is a, a career best performance. And I think that, and I don't know, I, maybe we dive into it here, I don't know. But it's so strange to, like, it, not strange, sorry. It's, it's very, like, um, I don't know how to describe it. But, like, he's, like, incredibly, like, watchable, incredibly heartbreaking in this movie. Like... I just, I, 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 I'm, it's just, I don't want to say strange. Like I said, I just don't know how, like I can watch something like this knowing like the, the in real life stuff versus like some other people. I don't know. It's, 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 I guess it's hard. It's hard to just, or it's, you can disassociate with certain people. I don't know. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to open that up. I know that's a loaded, loaded question. That is really interesting because, I mean, this movie also has Joaquin Phoenix, who has iffy, you know, sometimes people like him, sometimes people don't. It's not like he's cancelable, but he is a divisive character, to say the least, but also uh, a Culkin in it. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) here we are. Uh, Like, (laughs) it's... It's just, there's a lot of, you know what, at the time he was casting very well. And I think that the Mel Gibson stuff, it is tough, especially since like you think about it in a way that he is, you know, he's playing a character in a small town that's predominantly white, that probably is, you know, if you think about it long enough, this town probably is all Republican, like they all voted for Trump, (laughs) you know, 
10 years yeah. later. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, it, he, it fits. And he's also, uh, he, I can't, he's a priest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. He's also a priest. So. Yes. Which nobody in real life or on screen, I don't think anybody exudes Catholic guilt more than <laughs> Mel Gibson. So it probably fits. I'm sure he's drawing on his own experiences. Well, and there is a scene where he's directly interacting with a female cop, which, I mean, kind of like ticked the thing in my mind. I mean, that directly relates to an incident with Mel Gibson. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. Um, So, like, it's kind of inescapable, the allusions to his past. But like you said, I I also agree that this is probably the best all-around performance from Mel Gibson. And I think it has in part to do with his supporting cast and him playing off of Joaquin Phoenix, I love the scenes of, of them together. Um, their chemistry, they're firing off each other so well. But then also because there are elements of levity, there are elements of like serious, like terrifying stuff, and and like real sorrow and real anger. The the dinner scene where he like flips out oh, and God, almost like yeah. loses it at his family, and then that causes him to break down. Because we're hitting all these highs and lows, and all of those tones are handled so deftly. Um, where I, I think anybody who is not as sure of a director would have fumbled with those pieces because they're held together so well and, and told so well in the narrative and Mel Gibson's able to really nail those beats. I I, I mean, yeah, say what you will about the guy, but you got to look at the performance and be like, shit, like, guy knows what he's doing. The guy's super talented. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like especially that dinner table scene you mentioned that it's I think I believe it's like a slow panning camera like it gets like closer and closer like very like slow and inching and just like seeing that table erupt in like this quiet like we're trying to have a nice dinner to this a very emotional release it's it's really cathartic and it also really helps with the tone of the film and make it more of a I mean, essentially, it is a sci-fi thriller as well as it is a horror movie. So it kind of just like ties in with that tone of, you know, holding everything in until all of it is released at once. Um, And I think he does that really well in the movie. We talked about the few of the jump scares with the aliens, but all of those are kind of just like quiet, quiet, quiet until like a a volcanic release almost. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, even look post the dinner scene. I know we're jumping around a lot here, but like the one... The one where I knew it was coming, in addition to the birthday party uh, sequence that we already talked about, is the one towards the end is, like, the final when everything, like, accumulates, where, like, the camera is just panning back and forth of, like, oh, okay, the aliens left. Oh, okay, go get the TV mm-hmm. that's in the other room, and we're going to watch the deal. And it just keeps panning slowly back and forth. And it's like, I knew it was coming. I've seen this movie a few times before, but that you see that alien in the reflection of the television when it pans back and you're just like, it's just like absolutely terrifying. And and I think that's, it's because it's so sparse. Like, like, you know, like you just said, Jenny, because it's a sci-fi thriller with elements of horror, it makes those elements of horror, I think, stand out more than a lot of sort of like quote what someone would call a quote unquote pure horror movie because it's only sparsely shown through the movie. So like when those moments happen, it's like genuinely, genuinely terrifying. Um, and you know, as someone, I all three of us love horror movies here for sure. I, I don't think that's a <laughs> anyone can argue that fact. But the, this is one of the few movies that like actually truly genuinely scares me still like it actually is like terrifying 
and I can't say that about a lot of movies, even movies I love. Like, I mean, I love The Thing. The Thing doesn't scare me. I love it's it. Fun. But, like, but like this movie genuinely, actually, like, moments just terrify me. Um, and and I that's no small feat. I feel like the reason for that is, is because, you know, The Thing, it's based in Antarctica. It's very rare that you would run into that horror I feel like there's, I mean, at least a part of me, like I grew up believing in aliens and there's a part of me that's like, well, what if? It's like, you're never 100% sure they don't exist. And this is like something that feels very real and grounded in a pseudo plausible sci-fi reality where I feel like a lot of other horror movies just feel a little bit more fantastical in their uh, elements. I do think one of the most creative things he did, which we'll talk about it in a little bit more in Lady in the Water and the happening, because I think he kind of tried to redo it, was the cloaking device for the aliens Mm -hmm. and making them like almost impossible to see until M. Night Shyamalan wanted you to see them. So the idea that they could literally be anywhere at any time is truly one of the most like claustrophobic feelings that you're just not alone. And and how Spielbergian is that? There's the direct comparison to Jaws, is that we introduce Mm -hmm. that there is a danger and you know it's there, but we're not going to show you where it's at. It's somewhere around there. And um, the way that the jump scares, I, I kind of wanted to mention, are handled pretty uh, great. I, I, most jump scares, or most people's opinions with jump scares, are rather negative. They don't like being surprised. And that's what a jump scare is, is that it's not so much a scare as it is we surprised you. You weren't expecting that. But I love that. Um, other than a couple in the movie, most of them are set up with uh, this building tension that really leads to you expecting something to happen so that when it does happen, it's a genuine scare. For example, when he's out in the corn stalks looking, you you hear clicking, you know things are around him, you know he's not alone. He drops his flashlight, goes to pick it up, and you see the, the leg of the alien slip behind the corn rows, and he takes off running. That is a jump scare, but it's earned. It's not ooga booga, they came out of the closet, and you didn't think anybody was there. And so I, I think it's that combination of they're ever present and the way that he's able to ratchet the tension to either release with a big reveal or release with okay they weren't actually there and we're doing an exposition thing with between characters it keeps you on your toes and it keeps it exciting and thrilling the entire way through well and even one step further you know to go on the you know what jenny was talking about like growing up believing the aliens the relatability of all this Mm -hmm. is the fact that it's like here's this like potentially at least to the characters and what they're hearing on the radio a lot and on the television a lot which kind of fits the hg wells like radio serial war of the worlds motif is that you know here's this potentially world-ending event here aliens are here here they're attacking and the fact that we're seeing the point of view and shrunk everything down to this just one family. This just one family. Uh, just a, a pretty, like, typical, like, blue-collar family is, like, incredibly... I think what also, like, adds to the sort of terrifying because it's relatable. Because everybody knows people like this. It isn't, like, a, a grand scale, like, oh, here's everything that's happening to everyone at once. It's like, here's everything that's happening, but we've shrunk it down to this one family. And, you know, I mean, speaking of all of that, this movie is just, I know it was written before 9-11, but I believe production happened either after or right before. And obviously it came out like a year later. This movie Mm -hmm. is so incredibly lucky to be a post 9-11 movie because the themes in this movie uh, fit the post 9-11 
vibe to like almost yeah. a tea like it's yeah you mentioned small town blue collar family has no idea what's going on is only listening to what they can find on the radio literally everyone a year before was watching all of that on their televisions and feeling that same kind of fear and then I mean, this is also a little thing that I've talked about recently with a friend who was texting me because he was watching Signs. And then uh, like M. Night Shyamalan's character, you know, him being like the only like person of color in that town. And he just so happens to be South Asian. And he murdered the priest's wife in a drunken car ac- accident. And then it, it, it and he's like the one that like tells them all about the aliens and he's. It, there's like a there's a really interesting underlying theme of like that really ties in well with the fact that it came out like a year after 9-11 it's it remarkably lucky but mm-hmm. i think that yeah a lot of the things that it like kind of hones in on a lot of the fears were a lot of the fears everyone was feeling around that time absolutely it's an added layer and i think like especially re-watching it even years removed from it like i i feel like I felt brought back to that like time, you know what I mean? Like I felt brought back to like, because everybody remembers if they were alive during that time, what it like, where they were, when that happened. Mm -hmm. And so it like really like for me, just like brought me back to that. And, and I, I think like, you know, for, for better or worse and probably better, like it'll be always associated with that. Uh, I also did want to piggyback what you said. You brought up M. Night Shyamalan's character, Ray, um, who I, I got to say, like, I mean, obviously, if you're familiar with M. Night Shyamalan's film, you've seen M. Night Shyamalan's films, you know he has a cameo or supporting role in every single movie that he's made. This is far and away the best. Uh, this was the other moment I was referring to that made me, like, openly weep is when uh, Mel Gibson's character, Graham, uh, Father Graham, confronts him Um in the midst of all of this and that he just has that monologue like i'm so sorry like what happened to you and yours i never fall asleep on the wheel it just happened that night kind of goes into the motif of everything going together he's like it felt like fate felt like coincidence um and which also leads to one of the most terrifying scenes in the movie where he's like don't go in my pantry i locked one of them in there (laughs) the famous like knife scene another one that terrifies me um, but like that's the thing too. It's like he's he's so good too. Even in that small role, like Shyamalan is, is fantastic. And like I was kind of not worried, but I I feel like to Jenny's point about like him being South Asian and fitting the, like the fears because you when you first introduced to him, like they're all sitting in the diner in town, um, the Hess family because they are going and they uh, they are um, you know like we're gonna take our minds off everything. We're gonna go to town for the day and they see him outside. And then, like, you, your probably initial reaction is like, oh, it's because this is a small, like, podunk town in Philadelphia. But then you realize, okay, there was, there is a reason behind right. that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all that sort of, like, ties in, like, really well. Like, all, of course, the external factors that had happened at the time. I mean, yeah, it's... It's a totally added layer that, you know, can be dissected really interestingly because it's obviously like when you introduce him and you see he's a person of color and he's the one that's like the town hates. It's like there's a race. There could be a racism element to it. There isn't explicitly in the film. But I mean, it's it's really interesting that he chose to specifically be that character. And I, I would say that can't be an accident that he chose to be that one. I don't think so either, and especially given that, you know, this takes place in some small farming community, forgive me, I forget the name of the town, just outside of Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. but 
other than than old most recently all of well i guess other than the last airbender probably too but like all of Shyamalan's movies take place in philadelphia pretty much like that's his hometown that's where all of his movies are set so like i'm pretty certain growing up uh, a, a young east asian man in like that era like he probably knows that like sort of like out outer farm area really well so i'm sure like not only i'm sure he's drawing a lot from his own experiences with that and growing up there um but it's also kind of bold of him also to be like okay well i'm going to play that role Mm -hmm. i'm going to take on that role and take on that part as well um and he does it well you know of course we're probably going to get into two little small roles of his in the next two movies but like i I think this is his best uh in front of the camera for sure yeah um i just wanted to quickly mention uh since we're talking about the the town's attitude towards him i didn't notice it until this watch of it recently but there uh, the dogs freak out when the aliens are around um and that seems to be like just they, they don't like the danger so they flip out one of the dogs ends up getting stabbed um and uh graham's character uh says uh i'll call the doctor and i think it's his son says like why are you going to call the doctor they're not going to do anything it's because he's not going to call the vet because the vet is in Naishamalan's character and he doesn't want to talk to him or see him. Um, which I it's a it's a really good reveal. I think the writing is so tight in this movie. Yeah. Like there is yes. not a, like a hair out of line. He Chekhov's guns everything. Yeah. Like yes, there is. It's uh, it's really good. That's why I agree. Going back to the twist thing, it's not a twist because no. he literally sets up the entire movie before you see the end. Yeah. It yeah. all pays Even off. Even the swing away. Yeah. He swings. Yeah. He swings. He, I think Ryan, you're like. He swings away. He, sw- <laughs> he swings the hardest in this movie because mm-hmm. he swings away. <laughs> <laughs> but he does. He really does. And and I, I, I guess, you know, as we probably start to wrap up this movie, the one thing I do want to talk about as well, you know, we talked about his balance of tone. I want to talk about how also deliberately funny this movie is at times and like a couple of those moments. Like, um, like like specifically i mean it starts with like when we first see and and how he balances the tone i mean i guess maybe even setting up the scene and just how he sort of masterclass the whole thing is like kind of starts with a joke when when uh graham's daughter Bo, played by abigail breslin comes and wakes him up and mm. says daddy there's a monster in my room can i have a glass of water which is like a funny precocious like kid line and then that's when we first see the alien in the shadows on the roof uh, but, you know, of course, Graham and Merrill think it's, like, the local boys, like, local gang who are, like, trying to fuck shit up. That's it's like Lyle and the wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wolf, something like that. And so, like, Merrill's telling Graham, like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna circle the perimeter and we're gonna, we're gonna, like, just scream and curse and do all the stuff. And Graham's like, well, I don't curse. Like, I can't curse. Like, it doesn't sound natural when I do mm-hmm. it. And so it's like, that's a funny line. And then when you see them try and circle the house and, like, like... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is like screaming like an idiot and Mel Gibson's Graham's just like oh, I'm yelling like, <laughs> can't, like do it and he does actually swear he's like it's time for an ass whooping yeah. he's like I swear I swore I heard like, like those moments or like when when Graham goes to the pharmacy and the girl behind the counter has to confess yeah. like all her oh stories. that's like, a good been, scene I love it so much she's like I've been saying words like shit and bastard <laughs> As douchebag curse word, depending on the context, yeah. <laughs> then I said it 120 times or whatever yeah. she said. Oh, and then he meets the family in the diner. He's like, I don't want any of you hanging out with whatever the character's name is. <laughs> yeah. It's like the or, first thing or, he says. Or I didn't realize that the first time I saw the movie, but when um, 
when Merrill's talking to the military recruiter and they're like, oh, you Merrill Hess, you're the one who hit that home run like 467 yards out of the park. And you hear a voice being like, yeah, well, he's got another record. And I was like, wait a minute. I recognize that yeah. voice. It's, it's Michael Showalter. I it too. It's like what also inspired casting choice too. Like <laughs> like seeing him in that where it's like he's good, but it's like it's like again, Shyamalan's got a sense of humor. Yeah. Like he he knew he needed somebody to like sell that like line in that specific way, um, and like all that stuff is I, I don't know. I, I I think it's really I just think it's really great. I think it's really neat. Well, I was going to say, I think it also adds a levity to when, like, there's a scary moment that happens. Like, you mentioned, like, the part where they're running around the house uh, looking for, like, the Lyle and the Wolf bro- Wolfgang brothers. I, Wolfhound brothers, maybe? Um, anyway, he then the alien jumps on the roof, mm-hmm. and then uh, the tone just, like, it's funny, and then it drops. Like, it immediately is like, oh, no, this is serious. This isn't a person. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, uh, I, this movie is perfect. Like, I, I love it so much. I, yeah, I, I think one of the scariest moments I had, speaking of, like, all of, like, the, the tension in the moments, was I watched this in, like, college, and I think it had been, like, a couple years or something, and I was watching in this house that, like, literally was, like, a wall of windows, and you could, it, like, went into this, like, valley, and there was a bunch of trees, and you could see the, like, stars really well, and mm-hmm. it got to the part where, you know, it's showing the live footage on television, which I think is one of like the most brilliant parts in this that they tried to redo in the happening and failed. Uh, <laughs> but like the the stars in the sky were and like the bird like flying into the UFO and like the UFO that's like uh, masked so you can't see it uh-huh. and then just like dropping. And I looked out in this like valley with all these stars and I was like, literally there could be a ufo from signs out there and i would i know <laughs> and i just like kept thinking about that and like i was like maybe i'll never watch this movie in a giant room with like giant windows again oh yeah i think it's that's fair <laughs> i think it's fair like growing up with a movie like this growing up watching the x-files too yep. like you know just like oh my god terrifying um i I know I mentioned this off mic, and I know we say off mic light a lot, so I apologize. But one thing I at least have to address uh, slightly, um, you know, Jenny brought up Scary Movie 3 at the top of this. I will have to say the one moment, even though I think it's incredibly emotional, it still really works. The one moment I have a hard time disassociating from the gag in Scary Movie 3 is when it finally sort of accumulates and we see, um, we see Graham have the interaction with his wife. Um, like, because we've been seeing, like, the snippets and the flashback towards the end of the movie, like, to the end, and we finally get to that moment. Oh. Um, and so when he walks by and he sees M. Night Shyamalan's character, Ray, sitting there, I'm, every time I watch it, I'm like, doesn't he say he needs a ride yeah. home? And then I realize, no, that's... <laughs> I just said Tom, I'll need a ride home. I hope... No, yeah, that, that, Tom, that guy is walking home. home. That vet... <laughs> Walking home. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm uh, the the actor. Hopefully, pronounced it correctly. Ajay Naidu uh, plays the character. He he most famously is from Office Space. Um, but <laughs> I, every time I see signs, I I can't disassociate that gag in my head. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. Like, well, like because it, it's it's one of those things, and we talked about this way back on episode three because we talked about Scream, and I know what you did last summer about like what you can associate and disassociate with the spoof movie signs i can largely disassociate most of it but like that one moment i don't know what it is but i could like i i in my head 
that's the leap I make. And it's like, I know that's not correct, but I, I, I make it. Regardless. It, it's because Scary Movie 3 really reframed signs. Like, they must have still yeah. had the set or something available to them. It's almost the same. <laughs> yeah, they replicate it really, really well. I Like, credit where credit is due, um, for sure. Um, well, any other thoughts on signs before we, we swing into our next uh, movie? Swing. <laughs> swing away. Um, uh. <laughs> I... I just, yeah, I think this movie is a perfect alien invasion movie. I think it cultivates a lot of alien lore that a lot of movies hadn't been able to just kind of, um, you know, bring together fully and all in like one film. And then anything after that, I just feel like hasn't been as good. Like you watch um, Dark Skies, it's literally a rip on signs. Like everything is the same and they really try hard to like, replicate the magic of what this movie had and it just he right timed it it was you know what the perfect time for this movie and i don't know if a lot of alien invasion movies can really configure it as well again i i think another part is that fact that we had the internet release early on like and it was just like chat boards and that's when i found out about crop circles and let me tell you crop circles <laughs> like terrified me i the idea of them like the fact that they like popped up mysteriously, quote unquote, everywhere. I'm terrifying. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, the fact that the poster for signs is literally a giant crop circle, which we yep. find out in the movie are arrows to attack. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, scary. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the last thing I was going to say is to piggyback off crop circles. And Chris, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Chris and I are both from small towns in the Pacific Northwest. So like crop circles and cornfields are, are, are a plenty. <laughs> so I made it. It was an actual like. <laughs> yeah, amazing genuinely terrifying genuinely terrifying um well i guess moving on um you know of course we'll go chronologically here for a second because we are going into his filmography uh a couple years or i guess two years after he made signs he made the village uh, which is probably even to this date his most polarizing film uh people seem to love it or they really seem to not um but i i feel like that was the moment that people really started to like kind of turn on M. Night Shyamalan whether it was warranted or not that's where people were like okay I think I see what you're about as a filmmaker um and I I, I think and, and like people were just like overly critical about it and I think that that doesn't accumulate more than Lady in the Water uh which we have chosen for our bad unfortunately this is part of the show where we get a little negative I will say before I flip it over to you guys because um this is a first time watch for both of you You'd never seen this before. Um, I saw it not back in 2006, but I think around like 2010. Um, I will at least be a little smidge positive up front and say I think this is an earnest misfire. Um, I think it's a movie that definitely I see what he's trying to do with it. I just don't think it's completely successful. But um, Jenny, you are our guest, so I'll start with you. This was a first time watch. What were your initial thoughts with Lady in the Water? Oh boy. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I do really love The Village and I watched it a decade after uh, it had come out. So I was hoping that Lady in the Water had a similar reaction to me where I'd heard a lot of bad reviews and like comments about it. I kind of knew what its shtick was. I've heard the jokes about it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no, it was not um, uh, the village kind of like renaissance to me where I was like, everyone was wrong. Actually, this movie is really good. They're all incorrect. This movie is 
it is really earnest. And for the first like 20 minutes, I was like, I really don't see why people hate this so much. It just yeah. seems like a very small scale M. Night Shyamalan movie. And then Story appears and her name is Story. And I'm like, oh no, this is M. Night Shyamalan actually making E.T. But then also somehow like cultivating all of the past three of his films into one movie. And I was like, this is like bonkers. The way that he like took his own tropes and was like, I'm just going to make it into this kid's story, but it's actually not a kid's story because it's kind of PG-13-y and scary, but also like, yeah, story is basically the E.T. of this. Mm -hmm. She even kind of acts like him in some scenes where she's not speaking and does like weird uh, things. Uh, And then, and then M. Night's cameo, that was when I lost it. I was like, (sighs) I was really trying because I did like Cindy Chung's uh, performance so far and I like Paul Giamatti okay, even though I think the stutter was a little bit like much. Uh, And then yeah, M. Night shows up and Story is like, there's a man that is writing something and it's gonna change the fucking world. And I was like, oh boy. (laughs) Oh man, yeah. And it's a bummer, too. And and Chris, I'm going to kick it over to you in a second. But, like, especially with, like, you know, the uh, first thing I, I thought of upon rewatching this, especially because I did rewatch a lot of Shyamalan movies, not just the three we're talking about, but others, including The Village, uh, leading up to this episode. And, like, I haven't been, like, crazy about Bryce Dallas Howard. But I do think, in addition to uh, Peach Dragon from a couple of years ago, which I really, really loved, and I thought she was great in it, The Village, I think, is her best performance. And she's phenomenal in that movie. Like, she carries that movie, like, head and shoulders. And so it was really dispiriting rewatching this one and being like, man, you really aren't given a whole lot to do. Like, it's not her fault. She just isn't really given much to do other than to be this, you know, like you said, E.T. kind of, like, surrogate character. Um but Chris, I, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. To the, you too. This was a first time watch for you, um, so I'm interested to get your thoughts on this movie as well. Yeah, I, it was a first time watch, and it, the, the same thing. If I hear like overwhelming negative reactions to a movie, I will go out of my way to not watch it. And so that's sort of. I mean, I I liked everything, even the village. I, I thought the the twist was the weak thing, and that's what turned me away from the movie. Again, I haven't seen it since it came out so i promise you that twist when you know it it works maybe so i've well. warmed up to it now like so i i can't speak to it specifically but um this movie i did avoid it like the plague just because everyone that i had talked to had been like it's bad and don't even bother watching it so i didn't so and i i also don't want to come in and completely shit on it because i know that this movie is very personal to m night Shyamalan. i, I know that it, it he simultaneously the same day that the movie released he released a children's book version of this fairy tale about the narfs and then the whole thing that's going on here um because it's based off a story that he wrote for his kids that he would like read them this bedtime story and i know that uh he gave the script to a producer at disney and the producer at disney um skipped out on writing uh, on reading it and the night that he like got it to her and then when she finally did read it like didn't like the script and so he left disney this was the first time in his career that he didn't have disney produce his film and he went over to warner brothers because he like believed in this movie so much that he wanted to make it happen so like it's deeply personal to the guy. I don't want to be like, what a, a giant hunk of shit. Like, it's really not... Like, it's a bad movie. I didn't enjoy it. But I do see 
some of the things he was trying to do, some of the things he was going for. There's some things in there that like little nuggets of like interesting tidbits. But I know that uh, in my initial review of it, I I, I felt that the, the story that there's literally a character called Story, and all of the other characters are sort of exposition dumping to each other in different scenes around an apartment complex to fill in and build a story to where the movie is it's an hour and 50 minutes i think long so it's like an almost two hour movie of a game of telephone of different characters building a story like it's a writer's room around an apartment complex of people (laughs) pitching ideas of like will this work will this work and then the next scene happens okay it didn't work so we need to shore up this next part of the story so they're like workshopping a script for an hour and 50 minutes and you're kind of like, you should have done this before you shot the movie, actually, is what should have happened. This this stage happens in pre-production. You did it backwards, M. Night. Um, so yeah. that was my initial feelings. I was just very confused as to, like, I saw what he was trying to do, but it just it doesn't come across on the screen very well. No, and I, I, I think for me, and, and it, you know, I, I had seen this movie back, like I said, not in theaters. I did not see it in 2006. I watched it in 2010. Funny enough, I watched it the same, probably the same weekend. I actually watched The Happening for the first time. I'm um, not going to get deep in the weeds, but I, I, uh, I had like a blogger page in college. <laughs> and some person who was trying to do an upstart website uh, found me and so i wrote for this site that never took off anywhere for but i was anyway i was reviewing the last airbender and i was like oh shit i haven't seen the last couple of night Shyamalan movies um also the hollywood video in my college town or our college town chris was going under and so i was there like every day because movies were a dollar so i bought lady in the water and the happening from there hmm. um and so like at that point you know because i i think probably you know probably not thinking for myself and seeing what I read online. I probably tend to go with the grain of like, Oh, well this movie's a piece of shit. And again, upon rewatching it, it's like, it's bad, but I would not like go as far as to say that because it, again, it is earnest. It is very personal to him, but like, I like your metaphor of it basically being like a story workshop, like a script writer's room for the entirety of the movie. Uh, from the standpoint of like, yes, you have a character named story and yes, you have, um, I think, Jenny, you mentioned this, M. Night Shyamalan's character is, like, the quote-unquote writer who is going to save the world and get Story uh, back to her, 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 like, society. So there's a little bit of, like, maybe a little bit of, like, pompousness there. Um, and not to mention the, the which is, like, a, a total, like, even if the movie is good or, like, enjoyable, like, if you introduce, like, a critic character as a means to like sort of deflect your own sort of criticisms like even movies i like like chef or birdman like movies i have enjoyed where i'm like that's the most painful part of the movie like unless you're ratatouille like you should not have a critic character in your movie and bob balaban basically being able to like be there to just spell everything out and like i feel like it's also like Shyamalan shot against like critics for what happened with the village um but it's just done in a way that's super clunky, and I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I guess I appreciate it a little bit more. I appreciate the smaller scale. I do like a little bit 
like the first 20 30 minutes i think jenny as you said where it's like you don't understand why people thought this was bad i like when when cleveland paul giamatti's character is just going around to his tenants kind of like uh, i know it's an anachronistic comparison but like willem dafoe in the florida project like going around <laughs> through the hotel and like seeing his different tenants like i liked that stuff like i i enjoyed the interactions especially because he has a lot of terrific actors in that like you said cindy chung jeffrey wright jared harris like you have a lot of really good actors really good character actors in in that but like yeah when plot happens is when this movie really gets bogged down it really gets bogged down in its own mythology and to the point where it's like like it's just kind of like impenetrable and then it becomes not enjoyable and that's not what you want oh yeah and i also felt like i guess because again i've seen signs we've talked about this already so many times where like you get to the part where they're outside the apartment complex and it happens really early on in the movie like after a story has been introduced and like saved and rescued um and then he's out there talking with somebody and then the sprinklers come on randomly and you know that there's something there because i've seen him do this trick before in signs and he does it so well in signs but in this movie he just somehow loses his way and there are some interesting things and like you know his his check off like gun kind of aspects that he loves to do where i think when they first introduce reggie's character he's literally looking straight his eyes are straight in the camera and that's you know, a thing that comes back in the end where he has to, like, look at the monster to make sure it doesn't attack story. But th- honestly, I would say this movie's biggest issue is, yes, there are so many. This is such a great cast. Too many people. Too mm-hmm. many people to balance in this in this story. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, well, God. I, I, nothing accumulated more to me in in the moment where, like, she's in the, the shower mm-hmm. and, like, everybody is, like, gathered around. I was like, Jesus Christ, there's so she's many also, people. Isn't she movie. naked in the shower? She is naked, yeah. And I'm like, this is really seems exploitative. Like, in, in that scene specifically, she's kind of like, I mean, they obscure it because it's PG-13, like, most of his movies, which is totally, like, good, but it's also, like also weird because it's just like she's also like naked through most of the movie and like people are kind of coming and going through paul giamatti's room and they're like oh like what do you have going on here sort of thing and it's like like i i feel uneasy well in in previous (laughs) scenes she was sitting in the shower with um I'm, i'm forgetting the character's name i'm sorry but there was the other woman that was like communicating with her and then turning... It's Anna. Yes, thank you. Uh, 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 but then, like, turning to the doorway and being like, okay, she's telling me this, and sort of, like, again, telephone, uh, communicating it over to the other characters. So, like, it gets weird when there is, a, like, a shot later through the curtains that are open of the shower of, like, 15 or 16 people just kind of hanging out, like, looking over each other's shoulders and stuff. You're just like, she's still in this shower. <laughs> Like yeah, why With don't the, you just yeah, keep Jeffrey writes the crossword. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 Jeffrey. Yeah, the whole the crossword. Oh my god! Like it, it's it's just it it is very like and 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 I gotta say, even when he misses, like I, I probably didn't even preface this one. Like I, I I do love Shyamalan. Like I, I love that he takes bold swings, but this is one of those where it's just like I I totally I don't like to use this phrase. But this is definitely one of those where I'm just like, you are kind of up your own ass a little bit on this one. Just a little bit. Like, it's earnest, but I think you just, like, got so, like, overconfident in the material. 
<laughs> and it just like backfires. And I usually wouldn't even say that about him specifically, except for the fact that his cameo is so self-indulgent. And oh, it yeah. it lost me because I was like, I know that's him. This is really bad. Why did he call it the cookbook? And I don't love the little... I, I even rewound it to make sure this happened. And I was like, am I watching this correctly? Where they're doing... He's doing laundry with his wife in the movie. Uh, they're... It's Anna, and um, I know his name's last name is Ryan, but Vic, Vic Ryan, and he like kind of abuses her mm-hmm. a little bit, yeah. and it's supposed to come off as a funny joke, and I'm like, that's tough, and I, you know what, I do appreciate that this cast, and I think that he did this a lot post Signs, where his casts were pretty, or post The Village, sorry, were pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. Like, I I think that also comes from him being a diverse filmmaker and finally having enough money and uh, credibility to, like, you know, cast who he wanted. But, uh, I don't know. Like, this movie has too many characters. It's too bogged down. I feel like it would have been a nice short story or a kid's book. I actually think that it could have been, you know, pretty chill. But I... As someone who really loves high fantasy and, like, weird, weird stuff like this, like, my favorite movie of this year is Undine, which is a movie about a water nymph. And it should, in theory, this should have been, like, a movie that just hit every, like, second for me. But it just kept going, like, into crazy places, like the party I mm-hmm. didn't understand. Yeah. I just felt like I didn't understand the, like, logic of the movie very well. And that, in a fantasy, if I don't understand why things are happening, especially one that's so ingrained in a reality... It's not going to work for me. No. Well, and it felt like it just kept changing the rules, too, like, as it mm-hmm. went along. Like, it was just kind of making it up. It, and, and and also, to, to kind of, like, elaborate on your point with, with Shyamalan, you know, to, to piggyback off that. Because similarly, I would try not to say, like, he, he went up his own ass. But I, I would say, you say cameo. I would not even no. call his role a cameo in this movie. It is a supporting role. He gets as much screen time as, like... Bob Balaban or Jeffrey Wright in this movie and I think that's where like falters is like because usually he's he's usually wise enough to like you know understand like because he is a good filmmaker but he's wise enough to realize like I'm not like the best actor yeah I like to appear in my own movies but like you know he doesn't like he doesn't Tarantino a lot, I guess is what I'm saying like he doesn't I knew you were going to go Tarantino I have to because Tarantino bugs me when he's in front of the camera and so like he he knows enough usually um but this one i i like maybe because it was so personal that he he just felt he needed to like play a bigger part uh especially becoming like you know i i like you jenny like i liked the village more upon a rewatch even though his role as a cameo in that movie i do think it's a little pompous his reveal in that where like he's like framed over the shoulder when you see the other like uh park ranger and they the park ranger goes to get medicine for the for bryce dallas howard back in the village and all you see is m night Shyamalan's reflection in the fridge like Mm -hmm. and i was like okay okay i see i see what's going on here uh but this one just goes like further and it's like oh like I love you, dude, but you're not a great actor. Maybe, like, step that back a little it, it goes too far. In the mythos of the story, he martyrs himself. Like, he's having a conversation right. with Story, who... I, I mean, maybe... I don't know if it's worth it for the audience to like get into sort of, like, a, a bit of the groundwork of the mythos itself. But, like, apparently in the before times, in the long, long past, there was water people called Narfs who could tell the future... 
and they spoke to people on land. And then for some reason, people on land got tired of hearing about the future, despite the fact that that led <laughs> to the entire building of their civilization. Apparently, they built up a civilization, have been really successful because of their talks with the Narfs, and went like, no, you know what, I'm going to go check out the unsettled desert, away from all these future-telling people. That sounds like the best idea. So they all left. Narfs lost contact, then lost interest, and then through the centuries... Narfs will sometimes come up and try to talk to people on land, but then there's dog things called scar scarbs scraps scrugs scrugs. Thank you, scrugs. Um, that uh, apparently like to name. eat narfs, and so then there's danger if they come to land and they want to. So that's more or less the groundwork. We don't have to get into the rest of it because the rest of it is literally the rest of the hour and 46 minutes of the movie because there's like an exposition oh, yeah. dump <laughs> at the beginning that tells you that groundwork and then the rest of it is them workshopping. So, I mean, there's Eagle, then you have to figure out who's the guardian. Who's the guardian? There's seven the sisters. There's uh, an architect. Uh, I don't know. Like, There's like 40 people in that bathroom by the end of the movie. But but there's not a film critic, let me tell you. That person well, no, gets fuck murdered. That guy. He gets eaten by a scrub. Uh, he, he's spoiler. like, oh, I've His seen everything. Critics. I know how this movie ends. Which, what an, what an <laughs> insane Shyamalan. scene of him being like confronted by the scrub and then like talking to the <laughs> camera and to explaining it. how film scenes work and being like, did you really write this? Like, it's insane to me. But like, he also wrote the scene, again, getting back to, there's a moment that M. Night has with uh, a Story, where Story tells him the future, and he asks her, like, am I gonna die? And she's like, well, yeah, you're gonna get killed by somebody who, like, didn't like your writing, and then that's gonna lead to a revolution that's gonna end all war on Earth. And it's like, you martyred yourself? <laughs> I don't want to say, like, because I, I know the, the story's so personal to him, but I, it also makes me curious, some of those elements about, like, him putting himself in that role and then becoming a martyr who like saves the earth and then this um uh critic character who comes in and gets eaten by the dog it seems almost retaliatory to somebody who would have read the script or heard the story and didn't like it and then some of these elements get maybe boosted up or added in in the sense of like maybe somebody like especially because he was getting criticism from disney and from some other people about his script I wonder if the critic in the story is a late addition. I doubt that the film critic is a part of the children's story that he was telling his kids when they were going to bed. <laughs> so did that get no, added later? No, the film critic definitely came in after the village when everyone wrongfully tore it down. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, it, they're, like and you know, he's personal. right about that. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, sure. But but I feel like it's personal in a lot of ways, and like it's not just because it's a kid's story, but like there's definitely stuff in there where he's kind of firing back uh specifically at people that are like critical of this story or critical of his previous movies and i think because of that it's easily his most unfocused script or story that i've seen uh because he's just kind of there's a lot of emotion that's going into it and not a lot it's not nearly as tight i mean yeah it, even a movie we're about to discuss i think has is more clear-cut and tighter written like tightly written than this like this is just all over the place bad names like narf and scrub no no not good 
Uh, and then the fact that an eagle saves her, I'm sorry, that was Lord, that's in Lord of the Rings, yeah. like yeah. M Night, please. Uh, maybe the critic is right; there is no original ideas anymore. Like, I mean, I'm, yeah. be honest, this movie is pretty original because I don't think I have ever seen something like it. It's got that. <laughs> it's like okay. Yeah, and, and I think that's that could be said for a lot of um, a lot of Shyamalan's movies, though. Like, I, I not to get personal or i was gonna give brief thoughts at the end i still will save it but i i I actually got the the privilege of seeing the movie old with my dad this last weekend uh we were the only two people in the theater and he came out and he's like you know what he's like that was different he's like that's not like anything i've ever seen before and so i'm like yeah that's a lot of his movies whether they hit or not so it's like credit where credit is due but yeah like the names are bad i mean chris chris you texted me the other night when you were watching this movie about yeah. narf and you're like all i can think about is pinky in the brain you're like no pinky's catchphrase <laughs> like come on it's like yeah that's it's a bad name <laughs> yeah gee brain what are we gonna do tonight like yeah it's like not what you want to think about with your high fantasy movie oh and these characters are supposed to be like i guess ethereal in a sense why such a ugly word and why did the korean family know all about them that was like i was like what is going on (laughs) it's almost like a, a meta narrative for the telling of like through oral tradition which is why all the characters in the the movie like well first he gets the story from the the elderly korean woman who is speaking through her daughter who then translates it to Paul Giamatti and then Paul Giamatti has mm. to explain it to all these different tenants around them they you know lose some bits and, and pieces there so it like that was part of the thing that I found sort of interesting is that it, like okay it's a meta narrative about passing down stories through generations and through people and through a community and what that means to them that's an interesting idea but like eventually it's just an hour and a half long campfire story and that's not interesting. Like, you, you need to do more with it than that. So, I mean, overall, like, ambitious? Sure. Disappointing? Absolutely. Well, and the, and the other thing that's really disappointing about the movie as well, like, it, it's not not good-looking, but, like, this movie was shot by Christopher Doyle, the great Christopher Doyle, one of Wong Kar Wai's uh, DPs, which we were just talking about off mic, shot Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. And this movie does not look like the same DP who did those movies. Uh, like Loki will say he can only do that with Wong Kar Wai. Just, just <laughs> That's pointing that out. Uh, he kind of replicated it in an Anthony Bourdain episode, but then they showed something that he had directed, and it was painfully clear that Wong Kar Wai is the visionary behind Christopher Doyle's oh boy. Christopher Doyle's fish, like right. style. <laughs> That's, you know fair what, enough. that's completely fair. <laughs> but either way, those are some big, big heavy hitter titles to be under your belt. And then you're like, oh, okay, I know who that DP is. Um, and especially, too, coming off The Village mm-hmm. with Deacons, too. Or it's like, oh, okay. Like, well, it's this, a $70 million that's budget, another thing too. too. So, like, like you shot oh, it in an apartment yeah. complex. And it's not really... It's not really no. on the screen. That's what's crazy. Like, most of his movies, like, are all on the screen. Even, like, some of the more recent, like, lower-budget movies, like Glass, which I wasn't crazy about, and, and Old, like, they're all up there for their $20 million, $18 million budgets. Like, I, I don't see it on the screen, for sure. Well, apparently, oh. the part of, like, a huge chunk of the budget for this movie went towards that apartment complex and the pool and everything there, 
didn't exist. That's an abandoned oh, construction site in Philadelphia, and they constructed an apartment building around a pool uh, because he wanted to you know, shoot somewhere close to home, and so they bought the land and built the whole thing. But well, it's like... It's a good set. Credit where credit's due. It's a good due. set. They built that from the ground up, sure. But, like, it's insane that you would, like, spend that much on budget to build that when, like, you definitely could have just found an apartment complex or, or gone to a set, like an actual set, and paid less money. Yeah. Any other any other thoughts <laughs> on Lightning the Water before we move on from either of you guys? Um, I... I mean, I, I would just say it's it's a weird interim period in Shyamalan's career. And I, I think definitely, like, when we were talking earlier about, like, his sort of ramp up to his Spielbergian opus of signs and then sort of middling weird career where he starts trying some weird things. He's now got some notoriety. He's now got some bigger budget. He's now got some more names to play with. And he can actually go out and explore more of those things that are sort of outside of, um, I wouldn't say outside of the studio system because it's not, um, but he's not, he's not tethered to the rules and he's showing it. So, I mean, this is a unfortunate misfire. His creativity is still definitely like dead center in it. You can see it and you can feel it and you know that it's a Shyamalan movie. Um, but it's just like an unfortunate speed bump in his career. Um, I I know that it's a bad movie, um, but I wouldn't count him out. Uh, and I think that kind of leads us into the happening, which is a speed bump of a different degree. <laughs> <laughs> Says you, uh, <laughs> Jenny. Any other? It definitely. What? I was gonna say any other thoughts on? Oh, I'll go, I'll save it for the happening. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just wondering if you had any other thoughts on leaving the water. Well, let's let's just dive in. The happening. I know I mentioned at the top. This is the movie that the that's ripe for the the what category because I don't know what to do with it, especially rewatching it. Um, because rewatching it in the context of his career, like it's not a good movie. Like I, I think flat out, it is not a good movie. I think we have to acknowledge that up front. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, and knowing that his movies do have like a sense of humor and a playfulness to them, even if they don't work, where I'm like, there's no way he's not laughing behind the camera as he's making this movie, right? Like this movie is a complete lark. I don't know what the joke is necessarily. But there's no way it's not. Um, but I will kick it over to you, Jenny. This is a first time watch for you as well. Um, what were your What were your initial thoughts on on the the infamous the happening? Okay, so I immediately texted my my old roommate who I was texting about signs with a few days ago, and I didn't realize that he had just recently watched the happening too. And so right when I finished it, I I was like, Dan. Did M. Night really try to remake Signs, like, six years later? Because he was like, oh, that was kind of a post-9-11 movie. Let me try that again, yeah. except this time it's going to be with trees. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? I was just like, and then he was like, that's a really good point. And I was like, no, he literally replaced the alien terrorists with trees. Yep. This is a post-9-11 movie, like, to a T, from the standpoint of, like, something's happening and people don't understand what's happening it's also happening a lot in small towns uh much like signs um there there's also a little bit of like you know probably a little bit of like political shade thrown because they're probably a little bit more conservative in the towns that this is happening to they're also happening in towns that have like i mean it it was 
it was obvious without showing it that it's like, oh, these are like mill towns or these are like nuclear power plant towns. And then there's like the shot where they go to the greenhouse and then like in the background, there's like the big like uh, Springfield-esque nuclear power plant. And I was like, okay, I'm not, we get it, <laughs> we get it. But it's certainly, <laughs> certainly like there. Uh, you're right. Thematically, I think it does try to hit a lot of beats the sign of signs. Um, definitely not as successful but it certainly marches to the beat of its own drum. I, I don't think anyone could argue that fact. Um, Chris, this was a rewatch for you. How how painful was this? How much do you hate me? How when is this? Ugh. When are we ending this podcast? Because I made you rewatch the happening. <laughs> the the happening. It's man, like it's really it's really strange because the first I'd say the first ten minutes of this movie, I would have to time it. Probably not. So the the first portion of this movie up until the exact second that Mark Wahlberg appears on screen um, <laughs> is actually fairly interesting or, or like fairly effective at least like we are also like we're planted rooted right in Central Park as things start going weird and we hear a scream um, uh, the the actress from uh, the Cabin in the Woods uh, is there uh, and she's confused oh, like we are and people are walking is. backwards yeah um which of course I, I just immediately recognized it was like the uh, the once upon a time in Hollywood meme. I just pointed right at the screen <laughs> like as soon as I saw it. But um, I uh, like it's it's very effective because like everything is going weird and everything's strange. And then like of course the thought of like not being able to stop yourself from killing yourself is a scary premise. Like it that is an effective thing. Or, or like watching loved ones and stuff throwing themselves off of buildings and not understanding why is scary and so like this sort of setup of like the scene in central park the scene at the construction site the people throwing themselves off the roof the police officer who uh, shoots himself in the street and people start picking up the gun and just taking turns and shooting themselves you're like okay like this is an extreme opening like it's already like a really scary a really dark premise probably the darkest thing that Shyamalan is has ever tackled uh, in his entire career it just just ritualistic suicide over and over and over on screen is extremely dark and that's heavy material to have to, to, to handle and I'd say like he effectively handles it pretty good uh, up there in that, that beginning part then Mark Wahlberg shows up and all of the the good nature and everything that he had built up in that first initial like just sucked out of the room of just <laughs> science teacher Mark Wahlberg being like you know why your face is perfect Jake you're a dog say hi to your mother for me it's like <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's I was watching it with Megan and Megan even commented like I saw that that uh, uh, Andy Samberg sketch on SNL of him doing the Mark Wahlberg impression and I never really paid any attention and then now I get it because that's how he delivers every line in the whole movie hey you stopped the train what are you doing you can't leave us here what say hi to no. your mother for me what no <laughs> <laughs> the entire movie and it's like you couldn't you couldn't even make an attempt to like add a different inflection or a tone or show concern or like do you know what emotions are Mark like you look at well, yourself in a mirror and you give these lines and like maybe try and convince yourself and then you can maybe try and convince an audience it's well, baffling especially the scene where like after they like go out in the field like when they're stopped by the military 
and like Kendall Roy goes like crazy and goes and starts like out shooting people in the field. And he's like, all right, I gotta make this deductive situation. Like I gotta look at the variable. And I gotta look at the variable. And I gotta look at the the constant. And I was like, con- or and I was like, like. <laughs> And also, why is anybody looking to him? He's just some guy like everyone else that's in the scene. And then Zoe Deschanel is like, well, you got to make a decision. What do we got to do? And like the other 10 people that are there that met met him 30 seconds ago are like, yeah. Come on, Mark. What are we going to do? It's just like, you're all in the same situation. He's a high school chemistry teacher who's terrible at chemistry, apparently. Like, terrible Run. Just run away. There is so many bonkers things in this movie where it's like you could you could maybe it would be like a very long receipt if you wrote them all down. Like starting in the beginning, once you meet Mark Wahlberg after the classroom scene, which is already wild. And then like his best friend, teacher buddy comes up to him. He's like, I got to tell you something about your wife. She's weird. (laughs) It's like now. (laughs) Now, wait, why are you telling him this now? And then they introduce her, Zoe Deschanel, in a performance that I do not understand. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did she take Ambien before, like, every scene in the movie? She, <laughs> like... you know, she's a comedian at heart. I don't think yeah. she can do drama. And I wonder, because M. Night, you know what, I might, I might. I can, I'll play your game, Ryan, because M. Night is very good at casting. He clearly has an eye for talent. What is going on in this movie? Why Mark Wahlberg? Why Zoe Deschanel in yeah. this in this movie? The only dramatically sound actor, and he isn't really given much to do, and he's merc- like unceremoniously killed off, is John Leguizamo. Is like the only yeah. one who actually has like a dramatic bone. The only one like, actually shows like emotion, like shows well, any range. But I want to piggyback off if we're, if we're combining my theory and with Jenny, what Jenny just laid out here, like I, I think at heart this movie, maybe it's not a good one. I think it's a comedy, like at its core. Like why wouldn't you cast Mark Wahlberg? Mark Wahlberg, who I've believed in maybe three dramas and has excelled, if anything, at comedy, specifically playing a moron. Like yeah. the other guys, Pain and Gain, like those are where he succeeds for me as an actor. Zoe Deschanel similarly like she's she's very funny she's a, she's a comedian um I don't know I I gotta say I I think this was like intended to be funny especially like you look at Chris you mentioned like those opening death sequences and it's like those ones are like are pretty stark especially because they are the ones that open the movie but I think like you get further on in the movie and like the death sequences are like hilarious and I think they're framed as such I think specifically when it's like everyone when the train stops why the train stop when the train stops and then they're everyone's packed in that diner and they're watching the news and like the lion uh like the zookeeper oh my god the lion lion. and he's walking so like stiff he's he's walking like carl havoc in this latest season of i think you should leave he's just like i don't want to be around (laughs) the lion mauls him like just slow he's just like looking like uh, lion takes his whole arm off and he's just like uh uh like that's funny there's like the scene I, I think it's outside of the greenhouse where like they're looking down the field and the guy gets ran over by his own like fucking like lawnmower and his own like plow and it's like that's funny too like yeah i i, I and, and the premise is so like you know to piggyback too off what you've 
started with Jenny, it's like I I do think as as maybe like Hamfist is as it is like the sort of like nine eleven allegories in this movie are sound, juxtaposed with being like the stupidest fucking like premise. Like there's no twist to this one at all. Like as far as like Shyamalan twists, they're just like from the get go they're like it's the plants straight <laughs> up. <laughs> oh yeah, because like, like the what is it. The guy who is, he's just literally the nursery owner or something like that. Like, that's his name. They don't even give him a name. He's like, yeah, I'm thinking it's the plants. By the way, hot dogs are strange. (laughs) He's got a whole thing. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, Frank Coulson, the great, great character actor, Frank Coulson, is just like, hey, yeah. He's like, hot dogs get a bad rap, you know? We're packing hot dogs for the road. You know, hot dogs get a bad rap. Got a cool shape. They got protein. You like hot dogs, right? By the way, I think I know what's causing this. You do? It's the plants. They can release chemicals. You like hot dogs, don't you? It's like <laughs> it's like literally watching M Night. I swear to God, like even like the hot dog thing, because like. M. Knight does that in signs where he's talking about something completely different and then like drops some information and then goes back and but it works so well in signs and here I don't know what the fuck is going on like it's like are we talking about hot dogs and I'm just like <laughs> and then he goes back to it he's just like oh and by the way I think it's the plants also about hot dogs again and I'm just like no no wait hold on it's like he is making fun of his own movie almost. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to watch this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like a parody of a show, like of an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like, like even further, like, I know we're jumping around, but even when you get to, um, oh, I, I'm trying to find the actress's name, but, like, when you get the old woman whose house they, like, post up in, and that, like, whole, like, interaction. Well, I guess not, not far before they go to find shelter at another house and the the poor like fucking kids with them get blasted with a shotgun through thank you the window. like it's gruesome well, it's, so it's, gruesome. it's so atonal cuz like they they show up and um Zoe Deschanel is pushing uh Jean Leguizamo's uh daughter that he had left with him so he could go off to like i mean like father of the year award you stay with these, these his, people, I'm going to go off and, and maybe find my wife who's most likely dead with this group of strangers in a jeep. See ya. Um, and he just takes off. But like, He's like, my wife is more important than my child. Yeah, <laughs> like, you're here and with me now and I could totally look after you, but my wife's somewhere in New Jersey, I think, so I'm going to jump into a jeep and I don't want to be here anymore. Um, we, I, I keep re- referencing, uh, I think you should leave. But... Um, <laughs> It's it's they show up with these kids that were part of that group in the field. Everyone else had been like you know killing themselves with the military guy's gun. So it's like uh, Mark Wahlberg, Zoe Deschanel, the 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 little girl, and then uh, two kids that are with them, like kids, like teenagers. They roll up on a house, and the people in the house are like, "We're not gonna let you in because you'll let the dangerous gas in." Doesn't matter that our windows are open and we're talking to you, which would also let gas in. But we don't want to open the doors and let you in because I would let gas in. And so then the kids, for whatever reason, are like, hey, open the door, you fucker. And they're, like, kicking the door. And so then, like, he just straight up pulls a shotgun out through the door and shoots a kid point blank in the chest and murders him. 
and he's dead and in a slow motion while Mark Wahlberg's going no like trying to stop it another rifle barrel comes out the window and shoots the other kid in the head just caps him in the skull like brains him and Mark Wahlberg runs over to the kid's corpse and then like gets down on a knee and is like stroking his face and it's like you are in front of the window that they just shot and murdered the kid from. Like, you are in just as much danger as anyone else is. But they gather around the kid's body and give him, like, a, a send-off. Like, almost putting pennies in the eyes. And then the people in the house are almost awkwardly like, Hey, uh... <laughs> hey, you should, uh, you should get out of here. Uh. <laughs> like, they don't it's, shoot them it's or anything. So accurate, kind of like, though. They feel bad about killing the kid. And they're like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, anyway, if you could just uh, mosey on. Like, that was the warning, guys. We <laughs> murdered the children. Chris, were you offended by this movie's uh, depiction of, like, East Coasters? <laughs> no, that's exactly what it's like out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, oh my god. And and the other thing, too, like, one thing, even in his good movies, and I, I like it when it's stylized fine, but, like, I think one thing that Shyamalan does get flack for is, like, his dialogue writing occasionally and, like, how the characters talk like inhuman weirdos. And, like, I completely understand this movie is, like, the apex of that, like, style of Shyamalan writing mm-hmm. because nobody talks like an actual human being in this movie at any point. Like, the the line that I often quote, um, you know, I already mentioned the character, but when, when the military officer... Uh, uh, Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong. I was going to say Kendall Roy again. I was like, what is the actor's name? I'm driving me nuts. (laughs) Uh, Um, Private Oster. Yeah, comes up and uh, is like, uh, you know, telling them what they need to do. And he's like, oh, yeah, we just came back and all this, like, horrible stuff happened. He goes, cheese and crackers. (laughs) It's like, like, cheese and crackers. (laughs) It's like, what? It's like, this is a rated what? R movie. You can just say, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, that's another point, too. I'm glad you brought that up because that was, like, the big marketing hook of this movie. It was like, oh, shit, guys. You ready for Shyamalan's first R-rated movie? <laughs> first and only R-rated movie, mind you. Um, and it's not even... And it was, oh, like, the... shit, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, deaths, the death scenes are, like, fairly gruesome, but, like, that's about it. And, like, that's the thing. It's, like, the scariest sequence because he's so good at like you know what he does with the camera work i mean we talked about signs and we talked about like that scene where he pans back and forth back and forth until you see the alien in the tv like i think the actual genuinely scariest moment if there is one in this movie and chris you already mentioned it is like when the police officer shoots themselves and then everybody's picking up the gun and the way that he does that tracking shot just from the gun on the ground we don't see actually people put the gun to their head Mm -hmm. we just see them falling on the ground and the next person picks up the gun and it's like that kind of like technique Shyamalan's really good at and so like i actually think he's better off obscuring the things that are happening as opposed well happening as opposed uh, to showing children getting like fucking annihilated by a gun <laughs> yeah or mauled by lions or ran over by a lawnmower like again when it happens in this movie it's hilarious and it's like that mm-hmm. shouldn't be like i should be actually terrified what's happening so but, you think it was all purposeful this is your conspiracy my conspiracy is, I think, in to a certain extent. I'm not going to say that it's entirely purposeful, but I do think I, it couldn't be. I, I don't think anybody would make anything like this, like, by complete 
like, I don't know. I don't think anyone could do this on accident, but I don't think anyone would do this completely on purpose. Like, I think this movie is, I think there are moments in this movie that are intentionally funny, and I think there are moments that are unintentionally funny. And so overall, I think the whole movie's funny, but I think <laughs> there are moments that are actually intended to be so. Um, but it's just like, when any like filmmaker who is kind of like naturally gifted at like technical craft such as Shyamalan like sometimes they don't always hit the mark like it happens like not everybody can bat a thousand every time out I mean way back episode two talked about Mission Impossible one of my favorite filmmakers is Brian De Palma Brian De Palma doesn't hit the mark every time like have you seen the Black Dahlia or Wise Guys like yikes so it's like you know not everyone hits the mark and Shyamalan's in that vein but I think that I do think there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a wink to what's happening here, but, and I think that's what makes it such a what because I can't quite decipher what he's intending to be funny and what is funny by accident. I mean, uh, I'm reading this review right now that gave it four stars and it's on Letterboxd. And someone is like, it's him trying to do a 50 sci-fi movie, and I'm like, you know. I yeah, could but buy it. Kind of, yeah, but science is... Well, yeah. No, I think you're right. But, like, 50s sci-fi in the way of, like, you know, wacky and just, like, mm-hmm. kind of over the top to a point where you're just like, what the hell is going on? The original The Blob. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, or... Um, um, God, I just... Like the Attack you. of the 50-Foot Woman or something yes. weird. Like, something just, like, a bizarre concept, which, by the way, not that bizarre because the concept, I, I doubt he saw it, but... Suicide Club is very similar where there's a bunch of people, you know, killing themselves throughout town for no explicable reason, except that one goes to weird, weird explanations as to why. And this one is just like, is the plan? Yes. He might have seen Suicide Club. I think he's a pretty like big world cinema like person. Maybe. Um, I mean, I I think that movie might have been a little bit hard to find in 2008, but uh, no, I, I saw it in 2008. Just kidding. I lied. So, well, you know what? Well, someone with his resources probably could have <laughs> could have found it. Maybe. Maybe he sure. saw that and was like, I can make it, but also make it 50s, make it plants. <laughs> but people could act in the 50s, so we still need an explanation for Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> I mean, they act big. Zoe Deschanel's character, I don't understand it. I kept trying I to. She doesn't act like a person no she's like i don't have emotion and that's her bit (laughs) there's like a weird sidebar like story going on where she like didn't even cheat on him but she's oh yeah she went out to tiramisu with like some guy dinner with some guy from work (laughs) and like that's they're like sort of leading it on the whole time that they're having an argument and that's uh that's m night Shyamalan's cameo in this movie is he's the other guy that's on the other end of the cell phone um that's his voice or whatever but like they're sort of introducing it that like there's a rift in their marriage. I think they're married, uh, and that they're like, married. They're of, okay, they are married. Um, yeah, because that's the thing is like, oh, John Leguizamo's character at the beginning is like, let me tell you about her on your wedding day. She was weird. <laughs> You're right. Yes, that's yeah, that, that's exactly what happened, and I completely blanked it from my memory. Um, but like, the like that's sort of a sidebar conversation, and then like eventually later on in the movie, she's like, I gotta tell you. I went out to dinner with a guy, and then nothing happened, and I didn't call him back. But then he called me on the train and pestered me when the whole yeah. world was ending. And then, and then, like, okay, conflict, 
resolved. Yeah. No, but it wasn't because then Mark Wahlberg lied about meeting a girl across the drug counter. <laughs> this movie, it, I swear to God, he is like, he's just, he was just fucking with people. He was just being mean at this point. He was like, everyone hates me. I'm going to make this movie to be like a wacko signs and people are going to like either love it or they're going to hate it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And he's like barn burned through every like major studio. Like we talked about him jumping Disney for Warner Brothers for Lady in the Water, and then this was at Fox, and then like every, and then not Sarah Bender at Paramount, After mm-hmm. Earth at Sony, and now everything he's done is at Universal. So it's just he's just going through, just like lighting a match, throwing it behind him, and then walking away. Shyamalan for A two four. I honestly, I would not be surprised if that happened. Do it someday. Get I, it. Uh, maybe not, because Universal was perfectly happy to wide release, distribute his movies that he's self-financed, and he's probably made a shitload of money on his last couple, more than he's made in his entire life. So, anyway. Any other thoughts on The Happening before we wrap so this So many thoughts. Like, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the Betty Buckley. You mentioned Betty Buckley's character, the older woman, at yes. the end. That is like promo to the visit like he basically took that scene and was like yeah i'm gonna make another movie out of it i'm gonna make a tire movie out of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's like little nuggets like here and there like yeah exactly like the whole like elderly fear well hell even like even old his most recently movie the fear of getting older like he's Mm -hmm. he's got something against aging and and elderly people i swear (laughs) well and just like the movie itself, I think he also is sort of like, it's such an anticlimax, it feels like a middle finger to the audience and to critics for for labeling him as the twist guy, that the movie is just like, it's the plants. Like, we already discussed it, like, up front, it's the plants. Okay, what are you going to do with this? Well, the plants just, you know, they just, you know, stopped. <laughs> Oh, but they didn't it's stop just, because done. they go to France at the yeah, end. Luxembourg, yes. Oh, it's Luxembourg. I thought <laughs> oh, it was back France. now. It yeah. might be. I gotta double check that. Actually, yeah. it might be Luxembourg. You're right. But it, it's it's almost insulting of of just like uh, at nine forty seven uh, the plant stopped. Why? And then like they have like a, a, a like, scientist oh. expert or whatever on TV who's just like. <laughs> I don't know, weird shit happens sometimes. <laughs> All right, well, next up at nine, we're going to be talking. Like, oh, but there are people that like are that sense. don't believe it happened, though. And that this, you know what? Watching this movie after COVID really pissed me off. Because I was like, <laughs> what did he know? How? <laughs> That's another thing, like, you know, talk about the post-9-11. I'm glad you brought that up, too. <laughs> like, yeah, it pissed me off, too. But at the same time... Like, it also has accumulated some kind of accidental relevance because of what we've all gone through of, like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, like, what did, like you said, what did he know? I guess the joke's on us because I'm looking here, uh, despite the fact that this movie is almost universally hated, it made almost four times its budget back worldwide. Oh, people were so excited for this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember people came to see it that opening weekend and they were like, fuck this, <laughs> then, like, no, it dropped off. For me, that was a fool me once situation. I was like, mm mm. I've heard about Lady in the Water and at the time The Village because I didn't watch it, didn't know how great it was. Uh, And I was just like, no, no, no. Uh, He has put out two clunkers. I'm not going to go see the happening. I'm smarter than that. I felt that at the same time, too. And like like I said, I I, I don't know if we've talked about this on mic. I'll 
cut it off if we have or if it was an off mic decision i was working in the movie theater at the time was assistant manager the main manager watched the happening i watched the incredible hulk um at the time i was like oh i got the better end of that deal now i couldn't tell you what happens in the incredible hulk but i remember the happening yeah. <laughs> so credit is, where credit is due yeah <laughs> this is it's, true. it's effective to a degree i guess yeah. so i mean that, that's what you can say about it and like I still think even it's not just us that are talking about the happening. I still think uh, of like people that say like, Oh, uh, M night Shyamalan makes bad movies. Here's examples. The happening seems to be like at the, the top of that list. So like, say what you will about the movie, whether you like it or if you don't like it, there's enough there that it sticks in your memory. And like I said, uh, like the top of the movie for me, the, the premise is strong enough that like when executed well which it does in the, the beginning part of the movie it is memorable and it is effective and it is horrifying and it really does harken back to a lot of the stuff that we remember out of Shyamalan from Signs or from The Sixth Sense um, or even Unbreakable like it's cool this is really well done effective filmmaking it's the rest of the movie that just gets into just we're just going to go batshit now we're just going to go get weird and we're going to do whatever we want to do for the rest of the movie so that's take it with a big grain of salt but i think i think the happening if watched with a group maybe um yeah. maybe imbibing a little bit in in some uh, uh some reality bending substances i think it can be a really fun time well we've often talked about our saturday night movie group on this podcast yes so maybe that'll be my next pick submitting oh. to you're gonna make, don't make chris me watch, watch it, it again <laughs> a third time yes <laughs> don't do that <laughs> This podcast is probably over. This is probably the last episode. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, But I guess before we wrap up, just maybe kind of quick hit briefly through Shyamalan's career Mm -hmm. post The Happening, um, since this is a retrospective episode. uh, Of course, the worst movie of his career, Bar None, came after this, which is The Last Airbender, um, a movie that, like... I've said, say what you will about Shyamalan. That he's made two movies, though, I think that are not worth watching in any capacity. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel, or if you've seen the movies, but Last Airbender and After Earth, I would say don't watch them. They're not worth it. <laughs> they're boring as shit. That they're that kind of big budget that I, like, I'm glad he's not working in anymore. He seems to find more creativity and, and intrigue in working in smaller movies. Um, so nobody should ever watch either of those movies, though apparently... He took his director's fee from After Earth, which was $5 million, and that's how he funded The Visit from 2015, um, his found footage movie. And that movie made like $100 million worldwide on a $5 million budget, so he made a shitload of money. I, I wanted to rewatch The Visit. Chris, you haven't seen that one, have you? But Jenny, I know you have, right? Yeah, I have. And it's basically that one scene in The Happening where they go visit the old woman. It is literally that movie. Basically, but it, it is notable because the kid from um, from Wildlife, uh, the movie Paul Dano directed, which is really great, um, is the the kid in that movie, and he's a rapper. Um, and I, if I remember right, he's oh a rapper. Oh my god, he is, and he yeah, raps in the credits. He raps in the credits, and he's like a germaphobe, and like the big, like, I, I guess spoilers for the visit, sorry. The spoil, the twist, that movie actually does have a twist, and the twist is that those aren't the kids' grandparents. And I remember, like, the the grandpa, like, is, like, like, he, like, has, like, Depends or something. And he, like, takes his, like, shit diaper and rubs it in the kid's face. Yes, he does. I remember that specifically in that movie. 
kind of like, Seth. I was like, him being a germaphobe would have, no, like, nobody would like that, yeah. even if you're not a germaphobe. <laughs> oh, I don't mind germs. This is fine. Yeah. Oh, Grandpa. Uh, you, you kidder. <laughs> and then, of course, he made Split, uh, which is a movie that I'm split on. Oh. Uh, I like I like McAvoy a lot. I like how the mm-hmm. movie shot. I don't think it all comes together. Oh, I think that uh, ending is insulting. It basically says if you have trauma, you're special. Yeah, it's bad. Like that that bad. is genuinely bad. Um and that kind of continues in Glass to a certain extent, uh which Glass is also an ambitious, you know, of course combo sequel to Unbreakable and Split. Um really liked it sort of like like unbreakable unbreakable was a deconstructionist comic book movie superhero movie before the superhero genre really became the popular form of entertainment and glass i think kind of tries to return to that and i like it in theory but to piggyback off that insulting element of split that comes in uh bruce willis i was hoping he would actually like give a shit he doesn't um and it's just like eh. it's it's an ambitious whiff um but briefly, I'm going to give non-spoiler thoughts because it's out and people can go see it. But Old uh, is my favorite Shyamalan movie since Signs. Straight up. Uh, it seems to be a polarizing movie. Um, people have mixed feelings about it. But I found it to be really like tense, really well done. Uh, the ending is kind of rough. But like the you know 90 minutes or 100 minutes of the 108 minute running time very strong very effective really inspired casting too i know jenny you mentioned that about his casting choices of how, how they're always strong i mean this one's got a great cast gail garcia bernal vicky crepes uh, abby lee like, alex got wolf a... alex wolf mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah that whole there's a subplot there i'm not going to get into but oh man it's <laughs> uh, it's something um but yeah just really inspired casting all around um so like i highly recommend old if you get a chance to see it um i'm sure in this day and age it'll be on premium vod sooner than later if you don't want to go to the theater understandably so but if you have a chance to check it out i recommend it uh though your mileage may vary because i know a lot of people who fucking hate the movie also so we shall see we shall see um but in the meantime we will wrap up but jenny uh, i'll give you the floor first where can more people find your work follow you online if they so choose uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so all across all social media platforms, Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter, everyone's favorite, um, is my handle is Jenny Lee, L-E-I-G-H-X-3-3, and that's Jenny with a Y. Um, you can also find me writing weekly for the Austin Chronicle. More than less, I should be working writing weekly, but sometimes movies get pushed back, so then some days, like last weekend, I have four, four reviews come out at once. So, uh... Uh, you can find me there. I'm also on Rotten Tomatoes as an approved critic now. Hell and yeah. hell yeah. <laughs> and then um, if you want to see the kinds of movies I like uh, and that I program, I also am the programs director for the Austin Asian American Film Festival, which our festival is usually in the summertime in Austin. So there you awesome. have it. I highly recommend everyone go check out everything that Jenny's got on her plate. Uh, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um and then Chris, we're gonna do things out of order today because oh god, fuck it, we're talking about Shyamalan, so whatever. <laughs> oh shit, what a twist! twist. <laughs> Plot twist. Chris, where can more people find you online if they so choose? Uh, if you so choose, uh, you can find me uh, on uh, Twitter at thochristo eighty nine, or you can find me on Letterboxd at c underscore thom. 
And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Riley90. That's R-Y-O-L-L-I-E 90. Before we do our usual wrap-up spiel, next week, Chris, it is your pick. We are finally getting to your Jaws knockoff. Yep. Uh, we, we had a little bit of a, uh, we had to make a pivot. Uh, just some things happen in the personal life. Not going to get too deep in the weeds, but hey, we're going to get back into that. Looking forward to that. We just when you thought it, it was safe. We're, we're coming back before summer is out. But in the meantime, you can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thegoodbadwhat. And you can email us at thegoodthebadthewhat at gmail.com. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations will go back into the show, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies that we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and sound public you could find in the show notes, respectively. Uh, thank you, Jenny, so much for coming on the show. Very, very happy to have you. Um, this was a fun discussion, uh, looking at M. Night Shyamalan's career. Um, so, and to our listeners, thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. We love you. The things I do for signs. <laughs> <laughs>